The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. doctrines that you believe, you find yourself looking at everything you sing, everything you read, in light of that. And so, what I would share with you this morning is the very first song, I, st- I had a lot of questions for much of the time, and I can go back through it, it's one of the lines of it is, I'm here to find you. Now, I will let you know that the Lord does not need to be found, He's very clearly and ever-present. He is not lost. He's not anywhere. But the, here's the thing: when I say when we say we gather together, the Word of God says when two or more are gathered in His name for that purpose, what is He is with us. And when you say, "Lord, I'm here to meet with you," you know what? Sometimes it's easy to come together with other people and meet with the Lord. But there are times when you're alone, when you're times when you're struggling, when you're not sure, you're not certain of things. That, Lord, I'm here to meet with you, and you're not sure. Lord, I'm here to find you. And, and one of the things that, when I read through Scripture, Lord, no matter what, I want to see you at work here. I want to find you at work, and I want to be a part of what you're doing in this Scripture, and what you're doing. And it's a prayer we have to meditate on daily, consistently, because it's in those things that we find how to use the purpose God has given us. Amen. And so... As we look at the book of Nehemiah, I haven't had anybody that would even begin to complain that Nehemiah is a book, um, not a pessimistic book of the Bible. It's definitely not any pessimism here. There might be some opposition that's pessimistic. There might be some fear that comes about. But one of the things that I reminded is always a very much an optimistic view of the future. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit more as we talk about a Christian Reconstructionist perspective regarding the book of Nehemiah. Now, someone will say, well, you're adding something to it. No, I'm just going to bring out the very things. Even today, even last week, as we laid a foundation, I'll talk about that just shortly, but as we laid the foundation last week, we're building upon it this week. There is something that has to go with this. Otherwise, if our worldview is different from this, then then there's no reason for us to do most of what Christianity is done today. And that's just what I'm going to say. There's not a straw man there. The reality is if you believe this way, then you might as well throw your hands up. You might as well stay home. You might as well not worry about anything else because everything else is going to fall apart and you have no purpose. I mean, you're just wasting your time. You're wasting your breath. And so there is purpose behind this. So what I'm going to do this week is what I did last week. I'm going to read the whole passage. I'm going to read through the, all the things we're going to study today, and then we're going to bring it out, uh, break it out a little further. I'm going to be taking a sip of water because my voice is about shot now. <clears throat> in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to be at chapter 2 today. And so in chapter 2, it says, In the month of uh, Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. 
Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I'm sure he didn't take, you know, hours of prayer here. Lord, have mercy on me. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So if it, if it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, good, for the good hand of God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard, the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to the Israel and was there three days. Then I rose at night and I had a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but one which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and the dumb gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and the gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. It was destroyed. There was no way that he could have to walk through that's only way. And I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had yet not, not yet told them, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them, of the, told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and for also for the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants. We'll rise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Amen. See, last week's sermon was foundational to everything we're going to talk about today and from this point on. Last week we really came from this place of how we respond to crises reveals our worldview. And this is why I'm trying to get to this. I want people to have a consistent worldview. If, so if you have a, a worldview 
that everything is going to hell in a handbasket, that we're waiting for the Lord to return just so that we can be rescued out of all this hell hole, then I'm going to say this, then you might as well go live like it. Go ahead, sell all your possessions, and just give them away. Don't do anything with them. Don't use them. Give them to people who will, and just live that way. Okay? Don't try to go out and tell people about Jesus because you're not telling them about the Jesus of the gospel is telling them what we're going to talk about today. You're not telling them the whole gospel. You're telling them a, a get-out-of-hell-free-card type gospel. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And we're talking about that more today. But I want us to see this, that ultimately when we came to this place last week and we looked at it, we talked about our isolation because of our, our of righteousness and because of our idolatry. We talked about isolated being isolated because of God's judgment. And we talked about our response at the end of that minute. Our response and our only salvation was what? To repent of our sin. And this is what came and this is what began this message in the way of thinking for me. Okay. Why? Why do we repent? So here's our first thing this morning, our theme of the theme for this day. Our worldview is to be future-oriented and one of victory. Our worldview is to be future-oriented, and our worldview is to be a view, worldview of victory. We have to ask ourselves that question as this is there. We have to ask ourselves after last week's message, what's the point of repentance if there's no action? What, what are we saying? Oops. I'm sorry. I did wrong. I messed up. Or I got caught. Or I feel guilty about this. I don't feel so good about myself. And those are those are emotions that come along with guilt. But repentance always demands action. James 2, 14 through 16 tells us, What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith and doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Repentance is unto faith. Or I should say, faith leads us to repentance. And because of that, that faith without action afterwards is what? Is a dead faith. There's no reason for us to say, I come before God as a, as a, as a filthy worm, and, and I'm a, such a horrible person, I've done all this sin, and yet, that's where we leave it? What would God, what would God, what would, what, what's the point of that? It's not just to, just to humble ourselves before God. That sounds like someone who's trying to take advantage of God. A person who wants to, who repents, repents unto action. And so that leads us to, to you know, it's not about just being sorry, but it's a, it's it's something that is uh, that's something that we're talking about is a biblical vision of obedience to the command to God's commands. So this is point number one, which is will lead us into the rest of it today. This biblical vision, a worldview, whatever you want to put it, is not just for us as Christian individuals to live by. Go ahead and put the next part up there, Grace, so we can look at it and tie this in real quick. It's not just for us as Christian individuals. The purpose of repentance and purpose of our worldview is not just something that impacts us personally. This is the problem that we have had because we've made Jesus just a personal salvation and a personal faith. I heard that. 
He made it a personal belief. And that's the thing. Jesus isn't a personal Savior. He's not your Savior. He is the Savior. Okay? He does not, he's not your genie in a bottle. He is the one and only Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the name that is above all names. Okay? So when we look at this, a biblical vision is not just for us as Christian individuals to live by. First, we are to bring this biblical vision of obedience to God's word before kings and leaders of this world. And I gave you that early because I wanted you to write it down because I want us to think about this. What is the first thing after? He's still in mourning and grief over his sin and the sin of his fathers. And go ahead and put it up there, Grace, in Nehemiah in the chapter 2. He's still grieving. It's to the point that it's anguished over him. Now listen, there's a difference between what Scripture talks about when you fast. You're not supposed to disfigure your face. Or He said what? Wash your face, oil yourself, make yourself like you're going on your way, like everything's normal. What we're talking about is he's so grieved and so gut-wrenched by the sin of his people and the destruction of his, of his city, of his forefathers and so forth. He is literally wearing it upon him. And there are people, you know, they walk into your presence and they're one way all this other time. And all of a sudden, there is a difference. And when there is a difference, we need to take note. The king, he was observant enough to know that one of his favorite servants, obviously, he's like, hey, where are you going to come back? He says, what? I see that you're not just sad because you're sick. If it's your heart, the very core, the very life-giving flow of everything you are is sad. Why is that? God gives us opportunities to do this. And you know what? This king could just have been just as responsible for the destruction of all that's there upon his father's city. And what does he call? He comes and speaks out. He speaks out to him. And he tells him, the place of my father's where my father's, my people were buried, has been destroyed. Lies in ruin. Sometimes we are to bring the biblical vision of obedience to God's word before kings and leaders of this world. And there's only a short time, like the, what we learn in Esther, for such a time as this, God has brought you to this place. And you hear these things. Joshua, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. There's times and places and moments that only give us, I mean, inkling of a decision. Time, honor Him. We get brought before Him. The point I'm making here is today is not that, that ultimately Nehemiah wasn't going before the king to ask permission to do the task of changing the world with the gospel. And that's not what we're talking either. We don't need to go to our president or our governor or our local county and ask for permission to change the world with the gospel. That's not what this is about. We don't need permission from magistrates to be obedient to what God has commanded us. We have already been commanded. Where are we commanded? We're commanded in Matthew 28 to what? Go and make disciples of the nations. We're commanded to go to the nations already. Whether they're local or abroad. 
We're commanded, like, like Jesus says, call upon his disciples, his apostles, and all those there. Acts 1 8, what? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Or like the purpose of God upon Paul's life revealed to Ananias, who didn't want to go and do anything. What was it? He was called, what, in Acts 9 15? He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That is what he's given. We have the same type of call upon us. We, we are given an opportunity. We are called to, to bring the biblical vision of obedience before rulers and kings and leaders of our nations and our local governments and so forth. We are. We don't need permission. Bringing the biblical vision of obedience to God's command for leaders, civil magistrates, is a way to point out how we have transgressed against God. To point out suffering of those we have been called to protect, like the widows, orphans, the poor, and the foreigner, and call, to call them, even as leaders, to repentance, and to make them aware of what God's Word says the responsibility is to do. I think it's interesting, and I, can, I don't mind reading into it a little bit. I find it interesting that when he points out that my, the land of my forefathers where they are buried, that it is lies and ruin, the king said, didn't say, so what? This is where you are now. That's them. That was back in the past. That's it. That's past. We'll live for the future. Let's just keep on going. He didn't. What did he say? What are you asking? And, and I, I would like to, I'd really like to do better word story of it because he's, it's almost like he says, what are you asking for? What are you doing? Because <laughs> that's what his next reply was, wasn't it? I need to go. How long will you be gone? He gives him a time. Then he asked for letters, and so he can only have safe travel. But he asked, "Can I use the king's forest to rebuild it?" And he granted it. The king. What did the king do? He saw the need. He met the need. Now I know God is working by His Holy Spirit is working in all those things. But he heard the message of the good. The, I say the gospel that's there. These people have no hope. These people have. No protection from enemies. And the king granted it all. I think about it. Remember when Jonah was finally obedient to go to Nineveh? We talked about that sermon series. What happened? Everyone from the lowest all the way up to the king repented of their sin. Ripped their clothes, sat in sackcloth and ashes until in repentance unto the God that he might waver that God might not punish the people. Why? Because finally Jonah was obedient to go to where he was called to go in the first place and do. And Jonah wasn't happy, we know. He knew God. He knew that would repent. But the, say, the thing is, is we are to bring that biblical vision of obedience before leaders. That, what does that tell you about our status? Especially as Christians. We are... We, we are what? We are children of God. We, have, we are His mouthpieces. And I think that's interesting that we forget that. And we'll get to why that is. Second, we are to bring this biblical vision of obedience to God's Word before all the people. Not just to the kings. Not just those people who make laws. I think it's important that we go into people who are trying to pass laws or make laws or make bills and go and become laws. We need to make sure that they understand that the language that goes along with there should not be something that compromises the gospel or the word of God. That it should go in line with it. 
There are very few candidates, when you're talking about people running for the civil magistrate, locally, state, or abroad, that actually use language in their campaigns as true biblical language. Now, you've got people who are in office right now that send me little things all the time trying to get reelected that have Bible verses on them, and then when I reply to them, I get blocked. <laughs> Dan Patrick's one of them. Yep. He don't like me very much. So there's a reason why. Because I told him the Bible verse he used, he actually is a hypocrite because he did the opposite of it. And I pointed out where he did it wrong. And so it said, oh, I'm sorry that. No, I get blocked. I'm done with it. Choice. The thing is, he looks at this vision, he brings it to the people. Alright, so he goes around the city. We saw that. Look at the theme passage. He goes and he said, an official, they didn't know what was going on. They just know that there's this guy shows up and he's riding around on an animal. He's going and looking at the ruins. That's about all. And he did a lot of it in the middle of the night so he's not drawing attention to himself. Okay? And then he goes and speaks. Out at one of my favorite phrases. And I had not yet told all those people and the rest who were to do the work. <laughs> they didn't know what was coming. Because they might have said, hey, 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 we're good. <laughs> and he said, this is what God's given me to do. And what did the people's response? Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. The vision of most Christians today, though, is one of bleakness and hopelessness and defeat. I preached a vic- uh, message on the victorious church a while back, and I've, I've reiterated, if I, if I have an opportunity to preach in any other congregation, I will always bring the, 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 the whole account of the victorious church, talk about, uh, when we talk about that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, but actually we're called to storm the gates of hell. Yes. We have victory. So I, I preach that in every every church that I've had an opportunity until until I see the, the, what God can do with it. Um, unfortunately, most Christians are waiting to be rescued from some impending doom, holding back the forces of Satan and defending the last fortitude, the last outpost before Christ returns to kick butt and take names, as I put it. That. They they often recognize because of their pessimistic worldview that the gates and walls around them. That are lot, they, they notice all the gates and, and all that lying around them in ruin, right? And burned down. They, they notice it. They, it's, a, it's a part of life. If you've ever been through a, a fire ever in your life, you will know that there's no way you can avoid it. The smell is brings back so many things. See, it's not what they know that leaves them this way, though. It's what they don't know that limits their worldview. What they don't know is a vision, a worldview of biblical purpose, and that we have not only the permission from the king above all kings to reconstruct this earth, but we have the commands to do so. We are told in Matthew 5, 5, when we went through the Beatitudes, I remember this whole thing, we went through the Beatitudes, it said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay? He goes on in verse 13 through 16, You are the salt of the earth. We're what? We're, we're pre- preservation. We are... The, that which seasons, but we preserve it. We are told that we are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. All those things come into correlation that's there. Remember that the meek, the meek are not weak, but the meek are those subjected and harnessed to the will of God, and they will inherit the earth. Now, do you think someone harnessed to the will and purpose of God works and puts their faith in action to inherit rubble? 
or a kingdom that glorifies and never ends? That's a question. Do you, do you think people are going to put their hope and faith in, 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 in rubble and burn stones and knock down destroyed things? No, they're not. That's why we have this, this whole thing. But that's what's happened. That's why there's such hopelessness in the church today. That's why there's such this, this lack of, of anything uh, beyond just this mentality of being rescued out of it. When God's people are given a vision of biblical proportion and purpose, they respond with everything that they have and are. What did the people in the midst of all this rubble and turmoil and destruction, what did they say? Let's ready our hands for work. They saw it. They knew it. They just needed someone to say, let's go. You have permission, not from me, Nehemiah, a servant unto the king. You had the command, the very purpose of God to do it. And they rose up. I know, there's, I know there's problems later on. I know the rest of the story. But listen, they rose up. Third, <laughs> there will be opposition. There will be opposition. Now I want people to be aware of two things regarding opposition. It will come from where you expect it, but also from where you least expect it. I remember a man telling me, I know that's what the Bible says. And I know that I know what the Bible says, but listen, this has worked for us for so long. Why change it now? And I'm like, oh buddy. Oh that God would have mercy on you. We find in two places in the in theme passage, I'm gonna read both of them this morning. It says that in verses nine and ten and then nineteen to twenty of Nehemiah two. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. <laughs> now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. I love that part of this, this, whole, this whole account. Because I know it's one thing to have letters, but it's also to have, you have someone coming. This is the king. These are the king's men. But when Sambalat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it, was, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They were displeased by this. Not only did that, we go on verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> when they heard, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They, they, they're going to say, Listen, you're a rebellion. I think it's the same type of thing when you look at when Christ comes before, before Caesar, what happens? You know? There is a struggle. There is a political power struggle that's here. There is definitely a historical, if you look at it, there was a great struggle in this. And, and they were trying to play this, oh, y'all, hey guys, he's obviously rebelling against the king. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know how you come with the king's horsemen and yeah. army and he's and being in rebellion at the same time. The inconsistency, Right? So when someone comes and challenges the status quo of things, and they say, listen, you're rebelling against everything that's Scripture. You're doing everything against the tradition of the church. You're going against all the ecclesiology, all the pastors, all the people that are... Oh, excuse me. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, said, go and make disciples. I was just going to do what he told me to do. He told me I'm going to inherit the earth. I'd like to, I'd like to have something worth inheriting. 
I mean, you can invest in horse manure all you want, I guess, but I mean, and that's what you you get to invest in and you inherit. But I want I want to invest in a world that belongs to the king. I want something that looks beautiful. I want something that pleases him. So opposition will come from the lawless magistrates. It will happen. And others that seek to overreach their authority and impose unbiblical sanctions upon others to oppress them. National, state, local governments, they do it all the time. Police do this all the time. Interpreting laws and sanctions through their own depravity rather than using a righteous and just judgment. Are all police bad? No. Are all of them unjust? No. They're not. But here's the thing. Evil people do evil things. And it doesn't matter which, it doesn't matter how, how, how shiny the badge, it doesn't matter what the title, evil people do evil things. Yet, yeah, it's not the only place where opposition presents itself. Although it will. Opposition also comes from within what is called the church. There are many church leaders that preach a pessimistic view of the future, a willful, dis, uh, well, sorry, a willful obedience to slavery, and submit to the oppression of the state, the church, and so forth, without any form of rebellion. The preaching from their pulpits demands that your money... Now, I want you to listen to this. I want to be very clear. So if anybody hears this, or you have a situation where someone says, this is where your time is supposed to be spent. The thing is this. Their view is this. They're preaching from the pulpits demand that your money, your time, and your allegiance be devoted to the polishing of the brass of us on a sinking ship. No wonder why most Christians seem to be hopeless apart from their reservation with the big man in the sky. The thing is, is what we come to this place is most people, they're told to listen, all your time, all your money, all your efforts, all these things need to be devoted to this local place, polishing the brass, keeping us looking pretty until Jesus returns. And your hope is the fact that Jesus has saved you. And that's it. No wonder why their outlook is bleak and their works are not those produced by faith, but rather a perpetual spinning of the wheels waiting for the gas to run out of the engine. For most Christians, church leadership has left them with a vision of the future that is like being checked into a nursing home, awaiting the last stage of life, which is death. Yes, there are church revivals which do little to nothing more than undergird the walk down the green mile. Yes, there are vacation Bible schools all across the world during these summer months to make sure we tell our children about Jesus and get them some hellfire insurance. And I'm using all these things on purpose today. All these little things for me is not just for me to have some catchy phrases. I want you to understand this is the reality of what happens when there's opposition. There's opposition expected from the unrighteous, from those who are ungodly, those who are people who do not follow the Lord. But it also happens from inside those who are supposed to do it. 2 Timothy 3, I believe, if you want to be careful about this, 2 Timothy 3 doesn't talk about influences from outside the, the church. It's actually people who are inside the church who influence he says, but understand this, in the last days there will become times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, 
without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. And I want you to understand that as soon as you begin speaking about the fallenness or the things that are wrong regarding certain men, people will say, how dare you bring a charge against an elder? How dare you do this? And how do... I believe this. If someone does anything publicly, we need to address it publicly. That's why Peter opposed, what Peter was opposed by Paul to his face. That things privately done ought to start privately. And we've talked about that. But there are people who are inside the church who are the very, the very reflection of these things. There are leaders in pulpits who are the very reflection of these things. And these are not men who are going to set people free to go and build the kingdom of God. They're going to build the kingdom, their church. Fourthly, opposition, and lastly, this is easy, must be met by a consistent worldview, and it comes back to the first point, that is future-oriented and victorious. I'll tell you right now, there will always be people who want to be led astray to things of of enjoyment, right? For things of pleasure. Someone says, come to, I mean, it wouldn't matter if, if growing up, if so-and-so was having, they had a clubhouse at their house, and this could, you, we had all this kind of stuff going on, and, and Joe Schmo over here has basically nothing but a sheet hanging from a tree, you know, the, the, to cover that, you know, I have, I have a real tree house, and he has, you know, yesterday's trash. It, it, people, some people don't want to work for the things that they have. It's always going to happen. It's always going to happen. There are going to be people who want their ears tickled. They want someone to hear the things that they... They want to hear the things they want to hear. We, we know that it happens everywhere. It happens in our own families. There are people who... It's fine for you to talk about these things, but as soon as you cross this one line, you know I'm going to shut you down. It doesn't matter if you mean well or not. Opposition always must be met with a consistent worldview that is future-oriented and victorious. Because soon as someone starts talking to me about the good old days, I love to, that's why history is so important. Folks. Not, I mean, study history, study beyond that history. It's consistently, failure is the same failure over and over again. This line of thinking always leads to this type of thing. And what I always remember, when people talk, oh, the 50s were so good. Oh, really? And I've gone and I've listed out all the things in the 50s. Oh, the 60s were amazing. Uh, okay. The 70s, the 80s, 
Let's go back to the 19th. Let's go back to the 20s and the 30s. Oh, those were wonderful years, weren't they? Let's go back and let's see. You can always find... What we always remember is the good times because we recognize we want to forget our failures. We want to forget the bad stuff. But that is what we look at. And we always remind us... We, we, you know, there's always that. So people who are we're future oriented, not past oriented. What I'm saying, when we look back at history, you know where we don't want to go. But we're always future oriented. What? Because we're not stuck in where it was. I mean, it's no different than someone saying, okay, you look at the automobile with Henry with Henry Ford, and you look at the automobile today. What happens? There's progression, right? There's progress. You look at the first computer. You couldn't even fit it in this whole area. And now we have them walking around right here in our hands. Right? On a watch. Progress. You look at the public school classroom, nothing's changed. Right? It's the same thing. There's no progress. There's no there's nothing there. And so what we have to look is future oriented always. So we we tell when you start talking about a future that is different from the past, that doesn't replicate the past, but rather is a future that is not only bright, but it actually has purpose to it, and you give up people, and it's also a victorious future. That's right. It's not that you lose in the end. Everything doesn't go to hell in a handbasket. What are you talking about? Of course everything's going to be, everything's got to go bad for, for Jesus to come back. And no. Everything doesn't have to go bad. I mean, why would you want that? Why would that be an abundant life in Christ? How is that for a better life? I mean, Joel Osteen, that's his inconsistency. He's talking about the best life now because he knows everything else from that point is going to be not so good. So he believes. Opposition must be met by this consistent worldview that's future-oriented and victorious. And this is what Nehemiah said. You remember, this is the very last verse. He said, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, and you will have no part in it. No portion. It means you have no inheritance with us. I'm reminded, and this is why I, I love Scripture, and I love the Proverbs, I love reading through the Psalms. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. When we bring to light the word of God in obedience to his commands, when we bring this thing to light, we bring forth this future-oriented, victorious future worldview, when we put that, what happens to people? They cast off all that restrains them in order to what? To follow the Lord of God. Or they're going to go away from it. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says what? Trust what? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. When you give them a clear, vi a, a clear vision of where they're going, what's ahead? Psalm 119, 105 we find that that path is what? Your word is a lamp into my feet, a light into my path. And we notice, we go on to say, and I will hide it, your words in my heart that I will not sin against you. 
Matthew 16, 18 is my favorite passage. One of my favorite passages. He tells Peter, You're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. And when we came back and we talked about this, and I know people quoted back and forth, but I said, you know, what if this passage of Scripture reminds us that we go further back and we talk about the rock that Jesus is. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone and the capstone. He is the rock. Upon that rock, He's going to build the church. Not upon a man. He's going to build upon Christ Himself. And upon this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail. They will not hold back. When you give people that type of worldview, they will go before the leaders of the nations. They will go before the people and they will bring people to that place of knowledge of the Word of God and obedience to His truth. We will have opposition, but when opposition comes, we it's not hard because what happens is people oppose you. They're going to oppose you privately. They don't, they don't want to, people want to make a spectacle. That's what's been happening a lot lately. People want, that's the problem with social media is they can make a public spectacle out of anything and anyone. And the thing is, they want to do this, and when you have opposition that comes your way, what you need to say is this. Folks, do you want to go down the route of a life that everything's going to hell in a handbasket? Everything's going down to the depths of the pit? Or do you want to have a go a place that is that looks toward a future that's victorious, that you can build something now that will last because it's His kingdom. Not building for yourself, you're building His kingdom. You're, you're investing now in something that you'll inherit later. That changes everything. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. That was his sales pitch, if you want to call it, to the people. And they didn't go, Bill, I need to pray about this. They didn't say, how much is it going to cost me? Nehemiah knew it was going to cost. They didn't. No. They simply said, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we are his servants and we're going to do this. We're going to get it done. They rolled up their sleeves. They rose up and said, let's build. And that's a place that we have to be when we're looking at the things around us. We look at things right now. I know there are things that some things have to be deconstructed so they can be reconstructed. Okay? There are things that have to die in order that there be life. Ecclesiastes says there's a time for both. But not everything's that way. Y'all understand that? Do you know just because you expect a death of something or something to be deconstructed doesn't mean you can't start building now? That's what... The, the premise is not the deconstructing part. The, prom, the premise of our lives, the purpose and what pushes us on is the building process. The purpose behind that. The other stuff's going to happen no matter what. Because that's the way the Lord has ordered those steps. But everything else, that's what we, we, instead of waiting around for deconstruction to happen, some things he just, we, we are, because what happens is, we as Christians, when everything does go bad or goes poor and it is deconstructed, we need to already have the answer built and working. People need to see it's at work. It, it's, it is not only at work, but it's, it's progressing. We've tried this before. Yeah, you tried it on the wrong premise. 
there are things that, you, I mean, socialism has never worked, but I'll tell you, there are certain things that have been tried with the wrong principles, and we have, we have uh, been willing to compromise those principles, and that's where we're at. That's when we talk about finances. We talk about, you know, it doesn't matter how long someone went on a gold standard or what have you. The, the premise was there, and they abandoned it. And because of that abandonment early on, we have problems that we have today. And so that, it's simple things, but even in the church, we, we say we believe the Word of God, and it's our, it's our authority for all things, and then we quote the Westminster Confession or the Lundus Baptist. That's, our, that, that's what people quote to me, or the latest book they've read. This is my standard. Okay. Could some of the church fathers, could they have been wrong? Yes. Could some of the church fathers not known fully yet? Yes. Did they have the same, uh, did they have the fullness of the manuscripts that we had. No. Not always. So when we look at early church, I don't know, I go there. I want us to think about this. We have a purpose greater. And that's what we need to keep focusing. When we look at whatever's coming up, whatever crises, whatever um, hardship that we look at, or people are put our way, we look at we turn and say, listen, there is a future that is bright and victorious in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's not just when he rescues it up. We have a part now in having a live and active faith in order to do these things. Do you want to be a part of that or do you want to be a part of this? Which inheritance do you want? You want rubble and burnt burnt ashes? Or do you want a kingdom that lasts forever? Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.